0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and Commodity Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg
1: Intelligence FIC Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the FIC Focus podcast series, where we focus on all things credit. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is colleague Sam Geyer. Before diving in, a little public service announcement. Your support is, of course, instrumental to our ability to keep bringing great guests and great content to you. So if you haven't already, please do take a moment to follow, rate, and share. Thank you for your time. With that, super very excited to revisit the world of systematic credit today on this episode of Credit Crunch, and we do so with none other than Scott Richardson. Uh, if you are in the systematic space, you know the name Scott is a senior vice president and director over for systematic credit at Acadian Asset Management. He also teaches MBA and PhD classes over at the London Business School. Prior stops include AQR, where Scott was principal and served as co-head of fixed income, and as a senior member of the research and portfolio management team. He's held senior positions at BlackRock. He's written and published extensively. He's an editor of the Review of Accounting Studies. He's even written the book, Systematic Fixed Income, and Investor's Guide. And oh yeah, he has a doctorate in business administration from the University of Michigan, so he's probably pretty happy this year now that the Wolverines have finally won something. Scott, welcome. Uh, did I miss anything? Go blue. <laughs> Thanks for the welcome. Yeah. All right, so let's maybe dive in. And I think maybe we're going to start really more macro, because I think systematic, you need sort of a good foundation to really carry through the conversation. So maybe we just start with, what is credit? I mean, you've covered a range of asset classes. You've done a lot of work, uh, certainly just in the fixed income and credit space, but also around equities and other kinds of asset selection and asset allocation. So maybe just what do we mean when we say credit as opposed to, say, fixed income and how does that fit into the asset allocation conversation? No, Excellent. That's a very broad question with lots of
0: uh, subtopics within. Uh, So it'd be great to focus on credit. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, I'm going to use the term corporate credit to try and narrow uh, terms. So we're talking about uh, debt, so contractual obligations that are issued by companies. Uh, All the data that I speak to during the course the call today would be on developed markets, but everything I say can span uh, emerging markets as well. Uh, a- as an asset allocation choice, you know, asset owners should be allocating to corporate credit. Uh, there's a, a return premium. People call it a credit risk premium (CRP) for short. Uh, that embodies returns you get from shouldering default risk uh, as it pertains to uh, corporations uh, globally. Uh, that that has a rate component to it. Um, but I'm going to try and abstract that discussion away from that and focus on the unique returns that are available to investing in credit assets, and that's your spread return or your credit uh, excess return. Uh, that's highly diversifying, so you can't sort of you know, synthetically create the credit risk premium by buying a basket sort of say, government bonds and some stocks. You know, a, a corporate bond does have a rate component and a growth sort of uh, a growth component uh, through the free cash flows issued by the corporations. Uh, but it's diversifying now it's not it's not the same as you know some government bonds and some stocks and uh, that's a very powerful proposition uh, for asset owners so they have a distinct allocation to corporate credit uh of course that's a subset of fixed income you know fixed income markets are massive it's well over a hundred trillion dollars uh, outstanding in secondary uh, public fixed income markets <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I mean, a lot of threads to maybe pull on there. And I think, uh, you know, <laughs> we alluded to the synthetic thing. I don't want to go there right yet because it's obviously a little bit early. But but I guess maybe one of the other aspects I think uh, that's worth a sort of put a foundation in on here is just a little bit of, you know, so there's, and maybe this will frame up the discussion as well. So we've got active investment. we got passive investing as well. Uh, if we're focusing in on that corporate debt space, uh, maybe just sort of walk us through, uh, you know, the differences that you see there and, and sort of what's, uh, I guess maybe any deficiencies that have sort of arisen owing to sort of, uh, the emergence of passive? No, for sure. I mean, the
0: size of the corporate credit market, <clears throat> you could call it roughly around 15, 16 trillion dollars. That's us dollars, uh, globally that spans investment grade, uh, and high yield. Uh, so it's a massive market, uh, strategically uh, asset owners should be exposed to it. The question then is how do you get that exposure? Um, I'm sure we'll talk later, uh, the trading of credit-sensitive assets is notoriously challenging. So it's not easy just to go out and buy a basket of corporate bonds. Um, so unlike equity, where you can get very cheap and very efficient passive exposure to the equity risk premium, to get that efficiency and cost-effectiveness exposure to credit is very challenging. I mean, there are passive solutions out there. There are ETFs that track, uh, but they track with significant error or sort of a uh, say, dispersion with respect to the basket they're trying to replicate. They're not cheap, I and mean, we can just check what the... Uh, I won't mention names of entities that run the ETFs, but you know, it's almost <laughs> public information. The annual management charge is quite high. Uh, so there are some return drags uh, from getting ETF baskets for uh, for corporate. Uh, there are return swaps, uh, banks offer them. There are credit index derivatives, uh, all of which have their uh, sort of disadvantages or challenges to get that uh, passive exposure to credit, credit beta. Uh, so a lot of asset owners will seek active solutions into this space. Uh, so you can you can think of a, a lot of that 15 plus trillion outstanding for corporate credit is managed in a uh, somewhat active manner.
2: So I guess one area too that that we've been seeing some pretty uh, strong growth over the past, we'll say five, 10 years is, is the private credit world. Can you just walk us through what you've seen in terms of, of how that plays into a broader portfolio? Is it is it something where you think, you know, maybe investors need to get a little bit more exposure to, to kind of capitalize on that growth? Or is it something that they need to be a little bit more cautious about?
0: No, for sure. I mean, pr- private credit uh, should be part of an asset owner's portfolio, for sure. It, it adds diversification to getting exposure to different issuers. I mean, it's not, not often the same company that issued debt in public and in private markets. Uh, Roughly the same size, that's sort of surprising to people, the size of private credit markets today. And by private credit, I mean sort of direct lending uh, primarily. That's about one and a half trillion dollars. And that's similar in size to the bank loan. So that's the sort of syndicated bank loan market as well as the US high yield market. So these are sort of uh, similar sources of supply to, to get uh, credit, but private is different. And it's different in at least three key respects. One is fee. Fees are very, very high for private credit allocations. Uh, So an asset owner cares about net of fee return participation. So I always think that is a significant uh, headwind for private. Two, a lot of the data coming out for private, so direct lending in particular, is wickedly smoothed. Okay, what does that mean? You can get a a false illusion, if you will, of low volatility, uh, but it's really the riskier companies that need to raise debt through, through the private channel. So if anything, the volatility of private credit economically would be higher than what you would see for risky public credit. But the return data sort of suggests the exact opposite, and that's purely because marks are artificial and you're getting a false sense of smoothness. So that gives a perception of very high risk adjusted returns when allocating to private credit. Okay, so I call that an an illusion, uh, if you will. Maybe the third thing is... uh, the floating rate nature of a lot of uh, debt in the private credit markets. And with short-term interest rates a lot higher now than they have been over the last decade, I think that's a significant headwind and certainly a source of risk. You know, Will the private issuers be able to continue to service their contractual commitments when you got, you got a much higher borrow cost uh, because of the floating rate nature uh, of that debt? That sort of high-fee, artificially smooth returns, floating rate headwind, That sort of puts up a red flag, maybe hesitate to use such a strong term, but look carefully uh, before sort of jumping all into private. That said, you should have a bit of private alongside your public uh, credit allocation.
2: Yeah, and uh, another area too, when we were talking the other day, you brought up from an academic lens, this idea of a liquidity premium and whether that should factor into The credit markets as a whole. Can you just walk us through what you found from um, your research around liquidity and if that liquidity premium even exists?
0: That's an excellent observation. So, if I put my academic hat on, if you're a holder of a less liquid asset, and this could be a stock or a bond, uh, you should pay less to get exposure to that asset because you know in the future it may be challenging for you to exit that position. So, Rationally, you should see a return premium from holding a less liquid thing, okay? Uh, The data does not support that inference, okay? Uh, And let me be very specific. The data I'm talking about is within public credit markets. I don't have detailed private credit market data, so I'm going to limit my, my strong observations here to within public corporate credit, and this is true for both investment grade and for high yield. So we have data over the last 20 years, and I can measure liquidity in a myriad of different ways. I could look at how big is the bond? You know, the idea being a larger bond, all else equal, would be more liquid. I could look at how recently was that bond issued? Okay. The older the bond, the more off the run the bond, the less liquid is the bond. Uh, in the US, you have Trace. So that's a, a an, an engine that sort of you know, gives you post-trade uh, price transparency. So I can count up you know, what frequency of days do you observe no trades? And if there are, more days of no trades for a given bond, that would be a less liquid bond. I could look at the dollars that are traded. I could scale the dollars traded by the size of the bond and measure turnover. I can look at effective bid-offer spreads from that trace print to get a sense for when clients sell to dealers and dealers sell back to clients, sort of what's the width in that uh, bid-offer. Okay, so lots of different measures of liquidity and you can tease the data. I can torture the data to try and document that the less liquid bond generates a higher return. You can run regression analysis, I can form portfolio sorts, and the overwhelming evidence is no result, i.e. the less liquid bond does not generate a higher credit excess return. That's a puzzle, and, and the puzzle is sort of acute, or has acute implications for credit investors. If you can't see evidence of a higher credit excess return for the less liquid bond, why bother? because you know that bond's going to cost more to trade. It's going to be harder to source. You have to wait longer. So there's a lot of operational challenges. If I can't even find a return evidence before worrying about all that grief, I'd say think very carefully before you plunge into the less liquid uh, corner of the corporate market. Implication for private then is more of a question. And I really push hard on this. People that make assertions that private credit, rate, credit generates a higher return because of lack of liquidity That's got a big question mark on it. someone needs to show data, show me the case that the less liquid private generates a higher return than other uh, private credit claims. I think it's credit risk that that would give rise to the higher yield uh, in in credit markets, not liquidity per se.
1: Maybe a little bit of a a sidetrack here, but I'm always fascinated sort of with the liquidity conversation overall, because it does factor in terms of how a lot of people talk about uh, credit markets. And I guess one of the places where it sort of emerges to me is, is sort of just even in the conversation around prospective defaults or pricing for defaults. And and I think historically what you'll see is credit spreads, if you take an implied rate of default, are, are chronically going to overvalue uh, the actual realized default experience, et cetera. So I guess you know that, that spread differential between uh, 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 sort of the realized default as opposed to the implied default Uh, How do you sort of allocate that in terms of the market, if not total liquidity? Excellent point. So
0: you could talk in academic terms, risk neutral, physical sort of uh, probabilities of default, Um, but you have a spread. You know, the market gives you a spread and to be specific, it's an option adjusted spread. Uh, Think of that as your risk neutral expected loss given default. That sounds like an academic technical term. Uh, you, you have a, a view on will an issue a default. Give us a number, 2%. You know, I think the company is a 2% probably of default in the next six months, 12 months, whatever your uh, holding period hap- or investment horizon happens to be. Then if a default happens, you work at how much of that dollar do you get back? Maybe it's 50 cents on the dollar. Okay, So if a 2% probably of default with a 50 cents on the dollar, your expected loss is 1%. Then you go look at the spread on the market, it's more than 1%. Okay. Maybe it's 2%, maybe it's 3%. Okay. And that difference, what, do you, what should we, what could we attribute that to? It's easy to say, hey, that, that's your liquidity premium. Uh, it, it's a compensation for risk. Uh, so the academics would say there's a systematic element to that, okay. and that's your risk premium. So you're, you're getting compensated for shouldering that hard-to-diversify hard source of risk. Part of it could be liquidity. Uh, But as I said, with the data, if you try and decompose that, it's very difficult to identify both ex-ante and ex-post compensation for liquidity
1: risk per se. Is there a a best uh, risk mechanism? Like you get the Merton distance to default models, obviously you have the spread implied models a lot of people have developed, including Bloomberg has. Uh, LQA or LQC scores, which look at like bid ask spreads and that sort of thing, just different ways to sort of assess, uh, uh, or, you know, different uh, risk profiles and stuff like that. Is there something that uh, you think plays better or is, provides the most accurate read within the, the systematic landscape?
0: It's a good question. So, thinking <laughs> about trying
1: to try forecast or understand the,
0: the key fundamental, which is credit risk, what does that mean? I've got a view on the fundamental health of the issuer. So will that issuer be able to generate free cash flows from its operating and investing activities that are big enough to satisfy both its current and expected future contractual commitments? I mean, that, that's that's the game we're playing. Uh, this game is played by anyone who's active in these markets. It should be very clear. So it's not, not just systematic asset managers, but it would be the, tr- say, traditional discretionary managers as well. So you've got to you know, get your... Uh, pens and paper out and start writing down, well, what data do you want to look at to, to measure that? You know, will the company be able to satisfy its commitments? Structural models like a distance to have a lot of beauty to them. Uh, they are holistic, so they're aware of sort of the key drivers and sort of you can break a distance to default down into two pieces as a leverage, sort of how much you think the entity is worth on an unlevered basis. Then you write down what you think the company owes Okay. And there's a ratio of those two, that's inverse of leverage. Uh, and then that, that ratio must be scaled by a measure of volatility. Okay. And that, that, that gives you your distance to default. That's like a test statistic. You know? How big a shock in standard deviation units must this firm experience before it has a, a value less than what it owes? Okay, Very simple to understand, very intuitive. Uh, devil's in the details with the data as how you could measure that. Uh, <laughs> but that structure uh, is beautiful in that with good data, you can demonstrate out a sample that that type of approach does well at classifying the bad apples, so it does a good job of identifying those corporates that will end up in that, say,
1: distressed, defaulted uh,
0: state. But structural models are not the only way uh, to engage in that forecasting.
1: Yeah, so, so it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of like one of the things that we always toggle with, but before going too, f- too much further into sort of the, the discussion here, maybe just uh, one more leg of the stool in terms of the foundation. I guess maybe it'd be helpful to actually define uh, systematic for people and what we mean when we're saying systematic, when you're using the term systematic, and then I think even just talking to the strategy a little bit, right, it, you know, not only how does systematic differ from, say, discretionary but why is it that systematic is maybe able to, to capture uh, uh, different return aspects relative to what a discretionary manager can achieve?
0: Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, a good point. Maybe I should have started the, the whole uh, talk off with defining the, the, the phrase systematic. Okay, so systematic versus discretionary, let's put those two labels out there to sort of do a, a compare and contrast. Uh, all investors, I think in fixed income markets not just credit i think all investors in fixed income are quantitatively aware okay so the word quant i think is that does everyone a bit of a disservice like you know fixed income unlike equity markets you have derivatives and analytics floating around everywhere so what, what is a duration what is a convexity what is a spread so i think all active investors in this market are quantitatively capable okay so that doesn't define systematic okay the word discretionary i think also does a bit of a disservice uh, because all active investors are discretionary at some level because okay? you have to have a narrative. You have to articulate why do you think the market's wrong? Why am I looking to buy some bonds versus other bonds? So that's my story. Okay? But here I think it's the, what the difference is is how you write that story down and how you feed that into your investment process. I think that's what differentiates a systematic versus a traditional discretionary approach. Systematic, I tend to think of as being discretionary up front. Okay, so we have an idea. We talked about uh, structural models before. How do you measure asset volatility? How do I measure leverage of the company? Do I look at off-balance sheet information to get a view on contractual commitments, etc.? You've got to talk about that as a choice. Where do I get the data from? How do I measure it? That's discretion. The systematic providers are going to write that down, do a bunch of testing up upstream in the investment process. Then when you convince yourself that something is conceptually additive and empirically additive to your process, you code it up. I mean, think of writing it down, but literally you're coding in Python to ingest data upstream. Then the the rest of the investment process becomes human-free in that you're trusting the machine, that objective process you put in place to digest all of this information to generate a desired portfolio. Okay. That's what I mean by systematic. Contrast that with traditional discretionary, the discretion is throughout the entire investment process. So a trader slash PM is discretionary up to and including the point of trade. So their narrative is driving everything through the entire process. So hopefully that sort of helps the yeah,
1: and I guess, you know, you know, I guess a couple of things that sort of come up to me there is, is sort of uh, the process is uh, understandably pretty iterative, right, in terms of when you're trying to build out that model and trying to see what works. I guess, you know, a couple of questions that, that come up to me, uh, number one is, uh, you know… Mm-hmm. Data quality, right? I mean, that seems to sort of be one of the first good things. Like, how do you ensure data quality? And do you end up with suboptimal models to the degree that you can't find good data? Or do you just sort of say, here's where we get the best data, and then you sort of optimize the model to that? Uh, and then I guess secondarily, sort of what does the iteration process look like? Is, you know, Presumptively, you're not going to sit down and say, here's our theme, and we're going to code it all out, and then you're going to set it free, right? <laughs> It's going to be some degree of, okay, that didn't work quite like we thought it was going to work. Let's kind of come back and, and sort of maybe uh, tweak that lever or tweak this lever.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. So data integrity, so think of that as a necessary condition. You know, and this is true for all active investors. You're looking at something to get your narrative into the portfolio, get your story. Okay. And at the end of the day, you're measuring something. Okay. For the systematic asset managers, this is, you're you're very data hungry. Uh, And there are challenges with that data. Uh, And this is true for systematic equity investors as well. You want to make sure that the data you're looking at is accurate. Uh, Credit has a unique aspect, Uh, call it corporate hierarchy or or mapping. Uh, So you'll have bonds issued by legal entities that are within sometimes horribly complicated corporate structures. Uh, So you need to make well-defined, economically sensible choices, is it appropriate to take equity analyst data or financial statement data or equity market data or option data or security lending market data related to other companies that are say different or senior in that corporate hierarchy, okay? All of that falls under that label of data integrity, okay? So it's a big lift to get that broad set of data to be correctly used to model the credit risk of the company that's issued the bond. that's your necessary condition, okay? <laughs> then to convince yourself that you've got skill, uh, you have to have a, an iterative, iterative research process. So you have to have a testing framework, an engine. Um, and people criticize, Well, sometimes you hear criticisms of uh, systematic investment approaches in that they're backward looking. Well, every investment approach is backward-looking because no one has a crystal ball. Okay. so we're all trying to forecast something in the future. I'm just going to look at history to help inform whether I have skill that might work, hopefully, uh, in in the future. Uh, so the beauty of the data is you have a, a very rich testing ground. You know, so you might have an, a, an idea on some measure of valuation, so spread relative to your view on default. Is that successful in forecasting credit access returns? Is it successful in the U.S. or Europe, investment grade? high yield, small companies, large companies, cyclicals versus non-cyclicals. So there's a lot of data over many years, which you wanna interrogate rigorously uh, and demonstrate that something's additive to your investment process. So that sort of, that innovation, if you will, that iterative nature of the research process, that's exactly what it's doing. Using the data that's available to you to demonstrate additivity. Will this improve your investment process?
2: So Scott, I wanna dig in a little bit there on that investment process as a whole. Can you just walk us through what the, the various steps are that, that each strategy goes through when you ultimately implement uh, them into you know that ultimate investment process?
0: Yeah, okay, so you can think of uh, a recipe, if you will. So what are the key ingredients from a systematic approach to, to build a portfolio? Do uh, so you have to define a sandbox? So say so w- what bonds are eligible for consideration. Uh, in fixed income, you, know, you have guidelines that tend to be very strict, and on the corporate side, that strictness comes with respect to ratings typically. So you'll have asset owners that can't touch high yield or love high yield. Uh, so you'll say you know, asset owner insurance company only wants IG investment grade. Someone else wants high yield. Home bias is rife, so people in Europe may want European IG. Someone in the US might only want US IG. So you cater to the demand of the end asset owner and corporate that tends to have a regional component as well as a rating component. Okay. So let's, let's be specific. So we've got a, a an investor who's not subject to home bias and they're looking at investment grade. So I'll say global investment grade is my index. Okay. And we're talking about ice. That would be G zero BC would be the ticker. And you know, there's thousands of bonds in that. Okay. And that, that becomes think of a, a Excel. You have a big, Data frame, one row for every bond that resides in that index. Your job is then to get all this data that you trust that you map appropriately, distill it down to give you one number. What is your forecast for the credit access returns of the bonds that fall in that sandbox? Okay, I'm going to call that ER, expected return. Okay, so that's ingredient one. Ingredient two then is have some sense of what it would cost to trade, how difficult it might be to source those bonds and you're leaning on the systematic process to trade off those two dimensions. You like credit access returns, but you don't like things that cost a lot or a real pain to trade. Okay. So that's a negative component to your objective function. And then risk is the other big consideration. There's different ways to operationalize that, you know, linear mean variant, but you need to be risk aware. And the the beauty of systematic approaches is you can be very precise as to how you quantify risk. By by what dimensions do you want risk in the portfolio and what what dimensions do you not want to have risk? So I could use the word guardrail. So you might measure contributions to the portfolio across things like sector, industry grouping, geography, rating, duration, where on the curve are you positioned? And I, I would always advocate for dialing down your enthusiasm on some of those dimensions uh, because that if you don't do that you can then leave the footprint of macroeconomic sensitivity in your portfolio's returns relative to to a benchmark okay so maybe no that's a lot so you have a return forecast you got a view on liquidity or t costs and you have a view on risk and you want to blend those three ingredients together that's the wheelhouse of the systematic process i can't do that in my head I've yet to meet a person who can do that in their head. Okay, you need to lever or lean on uh, uh, an, uh, an objective function, an optimization routine, and that—that's the beauty of a systematic process. It's efficiently trading off these multiple dimensions uh, for you.
2: So, so getting back real quick to that that first step, where you're you know you're identifying which universe you're ultimately going to target. Do you then like once you identify that specific universe, are you trimming that down right away? Like, let's say. You know, you're trying to only pull one bond from each issuer or something like that just to try and narrow that universe down. Do you do that uh, right off the bat or do you just wait until that, that return forecasting has ha- already happened? Now, excellent point. So
0: tr- limiting to one bond per issuer uh, sounds appealing. But that reduces the dimensionality of your problem, but th- that's unnecessary. So you're sort of you're, you're leaving opportunities on the table. Uh, so you, I think you want to keep in multiple bonds per issuer, uh, p- particularly for investment grade. But you, I, I do think it's still prudent to pre- pre-filter that investment universe. And there's a couple of dimensions by which I think pre-filtering is important. One's liquidity. okay. And there will be some bonds in these universes that just don't trade. Okay? They're smaller bonds that are older, that are closely held. You don't see dealers regularly making markets. If they do, they're small or no quantity, just on one side, uh, you know, those things are going to cost a lot to trade. But if I go back to the topic we discussed earlier on that sort of puzzle of no liquidity premium, these are bonds that aren't generating a return premium. So I'm not leaving money on the table by ignoring the less liquid bonds, but I know I'm avoiding paying an arm and a leg to trade them. So unless you had a really high level of skill, like a crystal ball in that really illiquid spectrum, I think it's prudent to ignore them. Okay, and that would be true for investment grade and high yield, sort of get rid of that left tail. I mean, c- corporate as an asset class is less liquid than stocks, but within corporate, there's a left tail that's really illiquid uh, and prudent not to play there. You're not leaving money on the table. Then the other consideration would be, you know, what is your skill? Uh, so distressed, inv- this would apply to sort of special situation stress. So they're really risky into high yield. Uh, you can think that the top 5 10% in terms of spread, that's, that's an end of the market where you do have sharks in the pool. You know, you, you've got people that are aware of complicated corporate structures, covenants that can come into play. You know, the, the going concern assumption may no longer be valid uh, for these entities. Uh, so, what I say here is not going to be true for everyone, but at least for all the investment teams I've worked with for the last 20 plus years, that's not really. Our skill, our skill set. So you sort of leave that that section of the market out. So you're deliberately avoiding the most risky uh, corporate issuers. Uh, interestingly, th- that also doesn't come with a, uh, a punitive cost. So you're not leaving a return uh, premium on the table. Uh, but I think it's you know, prudent to avoid it unless you have that investment acumen uh, in house.
2: So and then getting back to something you mentioned earlier, just around trusting that model output ultimately you know you get it down to the universe that you want to invest in are there times where you you think maybe you could be you might be too dependent on the model and that you know if it's spitting out results that you don't think are ideal that you know you you ultimately go back and say we messed something up along the way or do you just say we we've done the work and we have to trust whatever ultimately gets spit out for the model
0: yeah, that, that, that's almost a philosophical question.
2: So the systematic <laughs> process runs along
0: in a sort of a, a desired set of buyers and sells and so it gets put, pushed off to a trade desk or you could be liquidity providing. So there's a an optimal portfolio you, you're transitioning to. Uh, and if you interrogate those trades, you may try and expose rationalize and say, oh, that one looks a little bit odd. I think no, because, okay. That can be a useful exercise. So you can learn from that and over 20 plus years, I've got that collective experience. Uh, Sometimes you can learn a lot from that uh, and that can help improve the process on a go-forward basis. Uh, Examples might be, oh, you like this company from a valuation perspective. Actually, this is a very complicated corporate structure. Are you sure you've got the financial statement data right when you're looking at leverage, when you're projecting that back down to the legal entity that's issued the corporate bond? And so there's cases, I'm now going back 15 plus years, you, know, you could have private equity companies that own stakes in operating companies. You know the, the leverage of KKR is not really relevant for a tire company. Okay, so the, you, you learn by example, oh, let's enrich how it is we ring fence companies for the purposes of accurately uh, mapping data. Okay, there could be news events, corporate actions. Um, so you, you use data from yesterday. I think something looks cheap, spreads wide relative to my view on default. But the spread's wide because the market knows after hours uh, there's an LBO or an MBO. There's some releveraging event your model's ignorant of, market knows. Uh, that's a case where you do want interrogation to be happening on a continual basis. Uh, so it's still you know, investing in credit, and this is true for equity markets as well, that your last line of defense, that point of execution, that interrogation should always be, is there something the market knows that my investment model is ignorant of? that is value added, what you wanna then do is try and systematize what you're learning. If there is some corporate action, can I get access to that corporate action systematically to improve my investment process for tomorrow? Uh, And that's a, I say, philosophical, you need everyone to buy into the investment process for this to work. You don't wanna have your, say, trade execution arm independently sort of jumping in all the time without trying to systematically make the process better which if you think over time, trading then becomes about execution. Okay, And ideally, you know, down the road, you, you have less need for that interrogation. So you've enriched uh, the model to such a point that you're more often than not at least as aware of things as the market.
1: And I, and I wanted to definitely come back to some of those points. Uh, I guess one thing that sort of comes up more immediately for me, and, and first I should apologize, I think Sam and I were trying to send you some incense so that when the conversation did get a little – you know, philosophical. You would have some nice uh, frankincense or something around you to sort of put you in the right mood to answer <laughs> it. But uh, you know, you'd mentioned a couple of times in terms of some of those structural considerations, maybe within the cap stack of a of a given issuer. And I guess besides maybe like structural subordination issues and stuff like that, the systematic uh, or do you try to embed in any way, sort of like say covenant packages, right? Because one of the things that we've seen certainly over the last Call a decade or so. One of the things that really upsets the Apple card in terms of valuation, particularly in high yield or loans or stuff like that, you end up with big asset carve outs, which totally change sort of the financial picture of that issuing entity or whatever else. Uh, is there a way to embed that, or do you just say, "Listen, this thing's got too many, you know, too many hairs on it. We're going to leave that one on the field."
0: Okay, so again, lots to unpack. There'll be examples of corporate hierarchies that are horribly complicated. And the distance between where you're sourcing data from, whether it's volatility metrics, financial statement data, trying to bring it back down to the entity that's issued the bond, it's just too distant. Okay. And you don't have comfort that the, the data passes at that necessary condition. So will be, that's the hairball. Let's, let's not touch uh, some cases like that. Um, but th- that, that comes with like a, a deep look through corporate hierarchy. Uh, the covenant—that's an interesting one. So, covenants are potentially measurable, okay? But you know, a- academics back in the day measured these things in horribly crude ways. Is there a covenant? Yes, no. And then they realize, oh shit, there's like many covenants. How many covenants are there? Let's count them up without <laughs> without really going to to look at what what's the the substance of these covenants. You know, if there's a free cash flow sweep covenant, how are they measuring free cash flow? There's huge variation there. How tight is it? So how much slack is built into these covenants? Uh, this is stuff I've looked at over the years. Uh, and th- the upfront question is given I'm, I've excluded that really risky end, okay, so I'm not in that going concern question mark subset of high yield, the role of covenants, even if you're measuring sort of substantive strength and slackness, doesn't add much to the investment process, okay? Uh, that's upsetting for some people, like, oh, there's a lot of covenant light loans. Surely, you know, your awareness of that must, must improve the investment process. But what people are forgetting is you've already got a hell of a lot that you're doing. You know, you're, you're modeling the credit risk of these companies. You've got a, a rich suite of things that's trying to forecast, will this company migrate to a worse credit state tomorrow? If yes, am I then being compensated with the credit spread today? So you're credit risk aware then does cov- does measuring these covenants add or improve that? And it's it's de minimis. Uh, but I think in that really risky end, you know, when going concerns in question, obviously that the covenants then become of first order importance.
2: I want to dig in a little bit on the the return forecasting side that you had brought up earlier. And just in terms of for you all, like what what goes into that return forecasting? Is it just a function of that likelihood of default or do you have more that kind of makes up that picture?
0: There's a short answer, lots of stuff. Um, so it's very much a fundamentally aware investment process. Um, so, but, but it's, it's more than just fundamentals. So you can think of like sentiment, technical flow type information. I, I want to be using as well. Uh, the only thing that would limit uh, what we could use in the return forecast is the law. Okay. So I can't, you know, Inside information would not be fair game, but but outside of that, I- anything that I can get my hands on that I can test and demonstrate empirical additivity to, we would use. Let's let's try and be concrete. So I'm going to use some labels like value as an example, uh, but I know that if I use a label like value, it comes with criticisms. Oh, it's just smart beta or risk premium investing. It's. it's I'm going to use labels to help make this discussion accessible. Um, I think every active investor in credit is valuation aware. So they're taking the spread from the market and they're gonna put alongside that, their view of credit risk, which could be a structural model of default. It could be a a linear, like a log odds ratio type model. Uh, It could be a reduced form model. It could be a machine learning model. Okay, so this is is an example where types of machine learning techniques have demonstrated uh, out of sample classification accuracy. So you might have a variety of methods that you use to forecast bad credit stuff happening, default rating change, et cetera. Then given that forecast, you go back and compare, does the spread, does the level of the spread compensate for that ex-ante credit risk? If yes, that's not a cheap bond. If no, so the spread is wide relative to your view on credit risk, that's an indication of cheapness. So you you, you want to bring to the table a lot of richness to improve that credit risk forecast. Okay. And then that that will govern uh, how you measure value.
2: How about like your expectations for macro conditions as a whole? I think that's, that's one area that I'd be interesting in hearing how you kind of factor that in, you know, whether the fed's going to take particular action or not, how you think about that and incorporate that into your picture. Yeah. No
0: macro very much second order.
2: Uh, for the
0: following reason. Uh, When I'm talking about corporate credit, I'm talking about the cross-sectional opportunities within. If you're talking about timing your credit, so like a beta view, then macro conditions are first order important. So for credit, what would you wanna be forecasting? Aggregate default risk. Okay, and then looking to see the extent to which spreads are uh, adequately reflecting that or not. Okay, actions of the Fed might influence it, but the stock market itself uh, might be directly Relevant. okay so let's sort of step back from market timing views beta views so if if i'm looking to pick up alpha so true idiosyncratic return opportunities within credit that that macro stuff quickly becomes second order importance Uh, in particular when i've got those risk guardrails that we talked about earlier in place so if you're limiting how much sector risk or rating risk or duration risk that you're taking that those macro drivers aren't going to affect your relative benchmarks so i.e excess of benchmark return performance they will affect the beta yeah that's an asset allocation decision but you're going to be you should be pretty immune to to that with your idiosyncratic uh, bond selection
2: so and then one area to digging into that default expectation side of things we talked about last week was uh, the ratings migration idea and, and how you know you could use that to ultimately predict or I guess, give a level of, of that default expectation. What are some ways that you all kind of approach that potential ratings migration? You know, is it a factor of fundamental data? Is it looking at what rating companies are putting out? How, how are you all looking at that?
0: Okay, yeah, so think of uh, a rating migration as a type of credit migration event, okay? So if, some, if something's rated double B and it moves to single B or triple C, all are equal, bad news, okay? Now, the rating agencies are slow, okay? So they, they, they're not updating their ratings you know, every microsecond. You know, they're updating through the business cycle. So they're gonna move slowly. They think deliberately, they're very bureaucratic, okay? So depending upon your investment horizon, the use case of the ratings can be a lot or it can be a little. You know, if it's sort of buy, hold, buy, maintain, so long holding period, uh, th- then the ratings can be useful. You know, so like with a five-year horizon, the classification accuracy for credit ratings with respect to future rating changes isn't bad. I mean, that's what they do. But if your investment horizon shorter, think six or 12 months, ratings by themselves don't help that much. Um, i.e., that means there's other data that you can be looking at to get ahead of these bad uh, credit events. And when I say bad credit event, a rating change would be one example. I mean, worst case is you move to the defaulted scenario, so sort of D or below, uh, a spread jump could also be bad. I mean, if, if you're in an IG portfolio and you're 100, 100 basis points and then next week you're 350 basis points, that's bad news. Okay. do not need to have defaulted. That's a horrific return impact for your portfolio. Likewise, a, a, a multi-notch rating downgrade is still still bad. Uh, so data you could look at that, l- lots of data, financial statement data. You could pick up a, a textbook and go to the, the you know, financial statement analysis textbook and go to the last chapter As an afterthought, someone's put down, oh, here's a a set of financial statement ratios that might be helpful to get a handle on credit risk. I sort of say that jokingly because there there is some merit to this. Looking at solvency ratios, how easy is it to convert stuff that's on the balance sheet to cash? Uh, That's useful. Measures of profitability uh, can be useful. Measures of volatility are particularly useful. And and that can be measured in many different ways. We have a, a paper sort of titled Asset Volatility, And sort of lists off a variety of market-based data, financial statement-based data, equity analyst data. So you can be very broad as how you want to measure these important constructs. And then you want to be uh, using that that breadth of measure uh, in in your credit risk uh, forecasts. Sorry,
1: Sam, that wasn't a a short response. (laughs) I I don't think we we expect short responses. That's why we do the podcast format. But I guess one of the things that sort of comes out of that too, and maybe a quick follow on there, because one of the things I think we've noticed in terms of the rating migration pieces, is, uh, you obviously have the price action in advance of whatever the rating activity is, and then once the rating action happens, you usually have carry through for the next sort of one to three months in terms of, you know, the, the bond does go from double B to single B or double B to triple B or whatever the, the price action is. Uh, do you ever sort of look at that? Is that a place where you say, listen, we know there's going to be new holders in this new ratings bucket for one reason or another, and so we can play off that trade? Or is that just something where if you don't catch it sort of before the knife falls, it's not really worth trying to catch?
0: Yeah, I think people talk about this rising star, falling angel uh, type effects. So I think that the most important thing from an asset owner perspective is to be uh, rating tolerant. Uh don't, don't write guidelines in such a way that you hold your hands or tie your hands. So if you had an IG mandate, you know, allow for some holding of high yield rated debt. Uh, you, you don't want to be a forced seller when there's more sellers in the market than there are natural uh, buyers. I mean, think of a case you got a, a large IG issuer okay, and it gets downgraded to high yield. The size of that issuer becomes huge in the higher market. Is there enough, enough capital there to absorb it? maybe not, so the price would fall further than it would otherwise. If you're the holder on the IG, don't realize that excessive loss at the time it falls into high yield. Um, so you tend to hear it more talked about on the fallen angel side, but I always tell people be rating tolerant, allow for you to continue to hold if your return view is still positive. It doesn't mean blindly hold all fallen angels, but if it likes and you know, fits your portfolio, yeah, a- a- allow for that. Um, you get a, an interesting liquidity effect. So when you know, bonds sort of effectively change hands from the IG market to the high yield market, you've typically seen a price drop before that rating happens because the ratings are slow to move. They're sort of the last one <laughs> the last one to catch up. Uh, but you, you do see liquidity at that point. Um, and likewise, if something falls out of high yield, you know, so it moves from sort of regular traditional high yield to sort of stressed, distressed investors. So there is a window of opportunity to trade if you if you need to. So there's an uptake uptick in liquidity, uh, but you will be crystallizing a loss uh, f- from those rating, rating transitions.
1: Interesting. So I guess uh, maybe uh, I guess maybe it makes sense to sort of pivot to portfolio construction here. So I mean, we talked about a lot of the different pieces and parts in terms of identifying uh, you know target investments, assets, et cetera. But maybe pulling it together into a strategy, and you sort of mentioned sort of like value as maybe one umbrella to sort of uh, invest under. But I guess when it comes to building out a portfolio, uh, I, I assume one, you're saying, are we going with momentum or value or whatever the strategy might be first? But then just even thinking about how you break it down in terms of rating, issuer concentration, you'd mentioned, hey, let's hold, we're okay to hold more than one bond at the issuer level. Uh, whether you're looking at duration profiles or even duration time spread or, you know, sort of the volatility uh, of a given instrument. Like, what are the the sort of the buckets that you're trying to fill to say, this gives us what we want in terms of a diversified exposure to the risk that we're trying to crystallize?
0: Okay. is you're asking for it, can I give like a three sentence response to what, what does the machine no, do get, when, it, when I give you it? You got more than inputs? three sentences, Scott, <laughs> yeah.
1: Scott, you got 11 sentences. I'll okay, count them 11. down
0: for you. There we go. Okay. So the, the, the port, the weights in the portfolio you're solving for want to eat the return. So you, you, you want to be overweight those issues that have the highest return forecast So part of that will be driven by valuation metrics. There are other things that go into the return forecast. So carry type measures, momentum type measures, sentiment, flow, technical type information. So you have a a broad set of information that gives you a return forecast. The stuff that you're overweight, you want to be overweight, the highest return forecasting bonds, okay? But you've got to do it in a sensible way. So as I mentioned before, you trade off T costs. So I might have two bonds that have equally high... Uh, credit access return forecast, but one bond is five times the size of of the other. It's more recently issued. I see ten dealers making reasonably liquid markets, and I've seen twenty trace prints in the last two weeks. Now that's not your typical corporate bond, by the way, but it's an example of a very liquid bond. That's one that I know I'm very confident in that the bid offer spread is going to be tight, and I'll be able to trade a reasonable quantity. Let me trade that one in lieu of the other bond. Okay. And that other bond might actually have a marginally higher return forecast. Okay, but So you want to be very sensitive to what it costs to trade the ease of execution. Okay, So that means your portfolio is eating the returns, but very sensitive to what it would cost to trade. So you're going to be distorted away from the highest return bonds. Then you have a bunch of constraints. So don't put all your eggs in one basket. We talked about having multiple bonds uh, for an issuer. You might like all four bonds from an issuer. I can't put one and a half percent of my portfolio into each of those four bonds, because you'll end up with a wickedly oversized position at the issuer level. So you've got to have position constraints that reflect liquidity. Don't put too much into one bond if it doesn't trade much. But be aware of multiple bonds that are very similar, almost substitutes to each other, because if something idiosyncratic happens to that issuer, like Department of Justice walks in and arrests everybody because it's a bonsai scheme, that's not good because you'll have four things go to zero instead of of one. then you've, you know, these are sort of user user choices. How tight do you want to be on duration? You know, do you want to be all in, overweight, the two to five-year section, or maybe the five to ten-year section of the market? I'm always you know, advocating limiting your enthusiasm on dimensions like rating, sector, geography, uh, and where on the curve, because uh, on average, you're not well compensated for that, but every once in a while, those exposures will be particularly painful. Uh, and you want to you want to avoid that pain. It's, it's never fun having a discussion with an asset owner. Oh, yeah, we're a point and a half under benchmark this quarter because we were yeah, overweight triple C by a lot. Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> yeah that, that would be a, a very distinct one. And I guess that kind of does give rise to the question because uh, as you're kind of alluding to duration. And so I guess, first of all, you sort of mentioned relative to benchmark. So are you benchmarking against sort of... Uh, like the global ag, or, or how are you electing your benchmark, number one, and then number two, if you say, listen, we do want to be all in, whether it's the three to five or the five to seven, or we want to be 25, we want to be all in long bonds. I'm assuming you're just sort of reweighting those exposures so that you're matching whatever the index duration profile is, plus or minus, and you're just taking the out of the exposure, but with a lower weight. Yeah, no, that's a, a, excellent, excellent point. So let's
0: start with the benchmark. So we're talking about corporate credit. So the benchmark is not going to be the AG. It's going to be the corporate corporate credit sleeve within the AG, not the credit sleeve, the corporate credit.
1: And because uh, we're at Bloomberg, we'll say it's the L-U-A-C-T-R-U-U, which is the uh, Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Index. Correct. So, so Lu- LUAC, <laughs> that's what we call it? Yes, so exactly.
0: And then you'll have other providers. Um, but you, you, you want to be pure in terms of what the policy benchmark is from the asset. So if it's IG, it's an IG corporate credit benchmark. Uh, th- th- this is very important, um, maybe less so for cre- corporate credit, but particularly for fixed income allocations, uh, taking risk within the benchmark versus taking risk outside a benchmark. Okay. So if I'm almost a purist here, so you owner know, gives us the benchmark, our job should be to engage in security selection within that benchmark in a liquidity-aware and a risk-aware manner. Pick up the, the bonds that are most attractive, That give you the maximal chance to beat the benchmark, through security selection, not doubling down on credit risk or sort of repackaging credit risk through non-agency securitized stuff. Um, So a lot of ag benchmarked uh, fixed income product has that problem. There's a a lot of off benchmark allocations uh, and that you tend to see sort of beta sort of dressed up uh, as alpha. Uh, But sort of now now back to corporate, LUAC would be example, choose bonds uh, within that now you could still introduce concentrated risk by say, loading up on the front end of the curve. Uh, I wouldn't advocate that. I, I don't see that as being a well-compensated source of tracking error or ex-ante risk. Okay, so I'd rather balance that. So how does that work in practice? Uh, I mean, we'd have an internal beta, so we have a, a, an internal risk model, but you could think of DTS. So D being your spread duration, S being spread, the product of the two, Uh, It's sort of a commonly used heuristic for risk. It it works reasonably well. So I think your portfolio in DTS contribution space wants to look similar to the benchmark on that duration dimension, on that sector dimension, on that rating dimension. So you still may choose bonds on the front end of the curve that you like, but you're sizing them. This is the important thing. You're sizing them in that risk-aware way. And that's a big point of differentiation for systematic portfolio construction vis-a-vis discretionary. It's that precision that gets brought to the table for sizing of the position to focus on what you want, which is that alpha, that that, that potential for idiosyncratic credit excess returns.
1: Yeah, because I mean, there's been a, obviously a lot of interesting academic research done, including by yourself, right, in terms of like the front end, maybe in risk adjusted terms, offering outsized returns and that sort of stuff. But I guess maybe one other thing before we move into sort of just trade execution and that sort of dynamic within the portfolio is just sort of thinking about... Um, how you think about, uh, cause I guess when I look at uh, something like the LUAC, right? I mean, there's some issuers that are wide, they're always going to trade wide, right? Uh, whether it's like a European bank or maybe it's just an issuer that has, you know, an outsized, uh, bond issuance. So they trade a little bit discounted to the curve. Uh, you'd mentioned sort of maybe you're holding to the maturity that gives you one sort of investment profile versus maybe it's more transactional. Uh, how do you think about sort of those sort of steady, market we'll call it a market beta just to, for a loose term in terms of bonds that just always trade wide or always trade cheaper parts of the curve like the seven year that always trades discounted and has maybe a more favorable roll down or something like that do you sort of adjust for all those sort of mechanics of things that just always trade in a certain way so that you're not sort of getting overexposed to say false value
0: yeah, I want to challenge the, the observation question. I think it's you've assumed an answer or you've assumed knowledge. So anytime you're an active investor, so systematic or traditional discretionary, you're challenging the spread. Okay? And you've got some examples where the spread might be wide for some reason. Okay, I, I'd push back and say, okay, well, what's the reason? Can I document what that reason is? Can I then measure it? Then my investment process is aware of that. And you can sort of think of it as a fixed effect in a way. So this bond from this company is always wide relative to a type of a default model, okay? That that means there's something in your default model that the market knows that you don't know, okay? And it could be an, off, an off-balance sheet contractual commitment. It might be an outstanding uh, transaction possibility, okay? Who knows what it is, but there'll be something that's potentially measurable. So you're always trying to go back and then improve So you call that a value trap, Uh, and any active investor worries about a value trap. So what can we do to get better data to avoid or mitigate that that value trap risk? To maybe give you a concrete example, uh, you're looking looking at leverage of the firm, and if all you're doing is looking at what is the current leverage of the firm as reported on the face of the balance sheet, the market might be aware of something. There could be footnote information that enriches a set of contractual commitments, there could be something with respect to the maturity profile. It's lumpy, near-term refinancing risk. Or it could be that the market knows this company's likely to engage in an expansion. okay, And that needs debt financing to be fueled. Okay, What do you then need to do? Go source data that's more forward-looking with respect to what will the leverage, what will the capital structure of this firm look like? That's how you systematically improve the process. So I think, Noel, your observation is exactly right. Are there, th- are there things that are there for a reason that you're missing? And th- that's that's what keeps us everyone awake at night.
1: Yeah. So so maybe let's uh, turn real quickly to trade execution costs, and I do want to stay mindful of time. And Sim and I still have a lot of questions to ask. So uh, maybe we kind of speed round it a little bit. But I guess uh, you know very interested in terms of both execution and trading, right? Because a lot of people talk about friction costs and the impact. Uh, within sort of systematic strategies. And you sort of talked about sort of that uh, willingness to sort of hold through different parts of cycles and people draw their parameters. Like if it drops from my whatever, if you're doing it in quintiles or quartiles or whatever, if it drops from one to the other, maybe you have a hold tolerance so you're not crystallizing a loss there. But even more broadly than that, even just thinking between primary and secondary markets, right? Again, sort of a lot of work out there on sort of the new issue concessions that come with primary markets. Obviously, you don't have the friction costs there. And if you think about investment grade, a fair amount of your outperformance tends to come from crystallizing those new issue concessions. So I guess a lot of stuff sort of baked into that comment, but maybe coming back, how do you think about maybe primary versus secondary? And then how do you think about actually sort of managing the turnover within the context of the portfolio? So you're not giving away, uh, the alpha. Yeah, no, again, so a lot to unpack. So first off, you know,
0: one big lesson learned over 25 years of doing this is the importance of execution generally or implementation. Uh, Academics can write papers that say, "Hey, X helps forecast returns." That's maybe a necessary condition, but very far from sufficient. So you can give it all away and more through unintelligent execution and implementation. Okay, so I sort of that—that's one thing I've learned to really appreciate. So you can—you can, yeah—the biggest bang for the buck oftentimes comes from implementation efficiency. Okay, so let's sort of try and unpack that a bit more. Um, so execution has a primary component, primary market component, and a secondary market component. Uh, so know what you said is correct. You do want to be a willing participant in primary markets. Uh, it's not as big a game changer as you think it would be because uh, I'm not advocating for blindly participating in every new issue. Okay. We have a return view, you know? not every issue that comes to market will have a favorable return view. So of those that do, you definitely want to put your hand up and, and sort of, you're, you're trading through mid plus more because you pick up that concession. Uh, systematic providers, have, again, I've learned this uh, from, from prior experience, systematic providers are a nice counterparty for the syndicate desks because we're not going to flip the bond back tomorrow. Um, yeah, that Syndicate desks want a little bit of trading, but they don't want to give everyone a discount and then get the whole thing back <laughs> 24 hours later. Uh, and this is all, yeah, there's, there's an effective explosive disability mechanism here because you know we observe fill rates that we get so we can do a workout and say, hey guys, you try to stuff our bag with the, the worst deal you had this year. And they also can monitor, did you come back uh, to, to present that new issue two days later? So we're holding it for the longer term, you, you tend to get a higher fill rate. Okay, so you want new issue participation, systematic tends to get a higher fill rate. Yeah, that, that's a nice addition uh, to your performance. But the biggest bang for the buck is uh, secondary markets. Uh, and I think systematic, uh, processes are unique in that they're able to provide liquidity to the market. Uh, and th- this is a big systems build. So you need to be able to ingest data from a lot of different places. Okay, It's not one exchange. Uh, there are many dealer, I want to use the word dealer broadly, so counterparties that facilitate trade in corporate credit. You want to have relationships and connections, direct feeds with many, maybe up to 20 different counterparties. There are a v- variety of platforms: you know, your market access, your true mids, your trade webs, Bloomberg. Uh, so again, you want to have sort of uh, an efficient plug-in uh, to those platforms. There are indication lists, access quote manager, there's portfolio trades, there's create redeem process with the APs uh, on, on, on ETFs. So there's a lot of avenues and protocols where one could trade. IT lift to get all that data ingested. And just so you can appreciate the magnitude of the data, you might be getting feeds from 20 different counterparties from 10 different sort of platforms. You'll be getting tens of millions of rows of data every day across that sort of universe of investment grade and high yield corporate bonds. In the US, you have Trace. So you'll have 100,000 plus prints every day. And that doesn't fit in Excel. <laughs> this is a complicated uh, data engineering solution that you need to be on top of real time so as and when you go to trade you know all the different places where you could trade at, at, at different quantities uh, and you can think of you know, clever ways to utilize that infrastructure to be the provider of liquidity as opposed to a taker of liquidity and uh, you think a bid offer spreads this is what, what i teach and the students get blown away by it the bid offer in price space for high yield if you just aggregate across all those platforms and dealer venues, it might be a median of 70 basis points. Okay, Got to keep that in mind, 70 basis points of price. Stock bid offer spread is cents. It's tiny, okay? Equity is a much more volatile asset class than high yield credit. So if you were to be a liquidity taker crossing a full spread per unit of vol, which is your investment opportunity set, it's an arm and a leg. So if you're not intelligent with respect to execution, any return forecasting skill that you have will be given away to who you're trading with. Okay, so that the execution is of paramount importance.
2: So Scott, I want to turn quickly to the addressable market and you know you brought up corporates around 15-16 trillion in that neighborhood how much would you estimate the systematic strategies touch and, and what kind of growth do you think we'll see over the next five years?
0: Yeah, good point. So it depends how you want to count or classify certain entities. In my book, I said roughly hundred billion. Uh, I'd still stand by approximately that number. Maybe it's 120, 130 billion, but yeah, you know, when people say billions, you forget how many zeros there are. So the, the markets in the 10 plus trillion, and we're talking about maybe $100 billion, so we're multiple zeros away. So you know, the penetration of systematic approaches actively into corporate credit is tiny. Um, that, but there's two interpretations from that. One is the challenge. There's an equilibrium argument. If fewer are doing it, there's possibly a reason why. And I think it's hard. Uh, it's hard. It's not impossible, but it is difficult to do this well for all the reasons we've, we've discussed today. But if done well, the opportunity is enormous. I mean, five, 10 years from now, those numbers could double, triple, get bigger. Uh, I mean, you could run 10 billion actively in high-yield markets, and you could run 20, 30 billion actively in investment-grade corporate markets. And that's just one provider. And these things aren't perfectly correlated, so they, they do scale, or that they have the potential to scale well.
2: So with the competitive landscape more broadly though, do you see potential that I mean obviously you mentioned there's there's a big gap between where systematic is at and where the broader market is at but do you see the competitive landscape potentially you know crowding out in certain trades like if a lot of these models start to you know signal the same thing, does that kind of eat away at liquidity costs and uh, the risk that you'd perceive as well? Yeah, no, so, so crowding as a
0: risk is true for all asset classes, okay? Uh, my concern for crowding in corporate credit is tiny. You'd have a, a much bigger concern for crowding risk in equity markets, particularly for levered implementations. Uh, sort of if, if there's a position that's crowded, you need a, a fire cell trigger, if you will, and, and leverage is oftentimes that trigger. So if people have a lot of levered positions and you know, the the security lending market dries up or you know, you're forced to sort of cover uh, cover losses that can you know, spiral and unravel itself and we're talking here about a lot of long only benchmark aware uh, investment decisions in corporate credit where you might, you might say well it sounds like people should be doing something similar like value you know, spread relative to default however measured you might think surely that's a common thing uh, the narrative is common okay so I've you know, over the years, given talks at like, very large asset owners sort of in the Middle East you know, through Europe, and you might stand up on stage and you know, give an example of you know, how does the structural model work? How does a machine learning model work to forecast default? And people sort of get it at a high level. Okay, you're fundamentally aware. Look at what the company does, where they sell stuff. What's the free cash flows? Is it enough to satisfy commitments? Then they turn around and say, oh, but you know, my fundamental PM from the West Coast of the US with a name that starts with P, they say something similar. And you're right, the narrative at a high level sounds like we're both doing value. The way you measure that and the way you put that into the portfolio matters a hell of a lot. Uh, And particularly when when the sizing of the position and the systematic approach is aware of risk and those dimensions of risk that you don't want, you you end up with something that looks very different despite it sounding similar from a high level uh, narrative. And, And that's supported by data. You know, so I've you know, written papers on this and you know, we, we look at this for a lot of clients, how different in weight space, so I, can, I can look at the bonds we hold in a portfolio relative to benchmark. So I have a set of active weights and then say, is it similar to you know, Asset Owner X in Netherlands? They've got three fundamental managers discretionary, how correlated in active weight space are those portfolios? It's very low. Uh, and that, that's a, a, a very common pattern. Uh, so that, that systematic approach is very diversifying with respect to traditional uh, approaches.
1: Interesting. So I guess maybe want to turn a little bit towards transparency here, uh, and then we'll move into sort of maybe wrap up. But, um, you know, obviously you, you publish white papers, you write books, you teach classes. Uh, is- from a high level, it says, you know, Hey, listen, we're kind of, here's open kimono to a certain degree, but systematic also has a reputation of being sort of black boxy and, and people don't really understand what's going on or how, uh, how the risk is getting taken. So I guess, uh, you know, what's your philosophy? What's the Acadian philosophy in terms of transparency around the strategies and implementation? 100%
0: embracement of transparency. Uh, and that, that's a, a, a A beauty and a curse, Uh, so having a lot of data at your fingertips uh, allows you to understand why you do what you do in the portfolio, it it is a deterministic process that gives rise to what you hold in the portfolio. Uh, Your narrative speaks through all the data that you put into the process, all the ingredients uh, of that recipe we talked about. Uh, You can leverage that a lot, so you can make that systematic process accessible to end investors uh by, by being transparent um you know, sort of getting we have you know, very powerful tools that that look through i mean you can track the return forecast for any asset on any day and interrogate why you like it or dislike it across many of the dimensions that we talked about you can look for a portfolio in both from an ex-ante perspective like where are your active weights today in risk terms across different dimensions return forecast geography rating sector etc uh, you can look at returns ex post. And so, so where were your tr- return contributions and detractions coming from? Now, the discipline that comes from that is enormous. I mean, th- think of a traditional uh, discretionary PM. They'll have stories, some of which are great, but that's fantastic. But the, you, know, you can't listen to 10 stories every quarter. This is sort of why, you, why you're overweight these positions and why they contributed uh, to the portfolio. Here you've got a process that you can explain everything. Um, Now, transparency comes with a cost because you you are revealing a lot uh, via doing that. And you'll notice that, you know, papers that I write and others that Acadian write don't go into that level of transparency. So that that's preserved uh, for for investors.
2: So, and then I guess kind of closing it out here, looking into the future again, you know, you. Briefly, brought up machine learning and how that can be implemented. How do you see, you know, some of this technolo- technological innovation we've seen in terms of AI, machine learning models, kind of playing into systematic and credit markets as a whole? Is it, you know, number crunching, building out some new data sets, or maybe even execution? How do, how do you see it?
0: Yeah. Well, f- first off, you know, these acronyms AI, ML, big data. Uh, I hear way too many people talking about it as though they know a lot. Uh, I know a little, not a lot, and I don't talk about it much. Uh, and there's, there's a reason uh, for that. There's a, there's a lot of BS, I think, that comes with this. Uh, you need a lot of data uh, for these tools to be useful. In credit markets, there is some data, okay? And the, the data dimension where I think these tools can work best is not on execution, okay? Equity markets trade two microsecond latency. That means you chop the day up into lots of different pieces you've got millions of data points credit may take days to trade so you, you just don't have the, the data richness to lean on ml type tools as much for execution but all that stuff about modeling credit risk i you know, think of ready migration moving to a default status you know aggressive spread jump spread changes you've got thousands of companies over decades globally that that's not huge huge amount of data but that's a lot of data Um, so you, you can exploit that data richness to lean on some ML type tools that allow for some nonlinear effects and interactions to be, that will enrich your return forecast as an example. Uh, yeah, but if someone said, oh, how important is it in the big picture? It is one of many tools uh, that you would look at. Uh, so I think we're, we're far from an era where it's the panacea that solves. Uh, solves all of our problems. Uh, I, I wish you could write, "Hey, ChatGPT, uh, beat the benchmark by two percent this year." Thanks. <laughs> yeah,
1: that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that, that that would be uh, that would be interesting. Um, I guess one last two-parter for you, and then and then we'll let you go. But uh, I guess the first part of the two-parter is: Is there any data that you don't have that you wish you had that you think would make your process better? And then secondarily, you know, in your 20 plus years of uh, sort of out there and doing this and looking at these various markets, is there anything that sort of consistently shows up as quote unquote cheap? Okay,
0: it's an excellent question. So you forced me to think in my feet real time. Uh, data that I don't have that I wish I would have. You know, the, the throwaway comment is a crystal ball. I, I'd like to know what the spread will be a week, a month, a quarter from now. But that's cheating That's says, I wanna know what the future return is. Um, more data on uh, flow, sort of price and quantity information around time of execution. Uh, so in, improved pre and post-trade price transparency globally uh, would, would be nice data to have. That has multiple uses. So you can sort of pre-screen, pre-fill your universe to get rid of the less liquid stuff and focus on what's more liquid. Uh, you have a better benchmark to evaluate how good a job you did in execution. Obviously, we're measuring this sort of data as we speak, but there can be improvements uh, and some more standardized nature uh, to the collection of that data. Uh, Okay, then the other question was on, is there stuff that's consistently cheap? Uh, Maybe that's another way to describe a value trap. Yes, do I worry about that? But there are things you can do to mitigate it, like a bank might be an example. So if I looked at a bank and had a structural model approach and wanted to compare it to a retail company, uh, the leverage is like an order of magnitude uh, different, but that that's not gonna be the driver of the risk. Like if you had a retail company with that amount of leverage, again, the spread would be you know, 10 times larger. <laughs> so when you're modeling returns, grouping, how you group, issues and issuers together becomes very important Uh, and and that becomes sort of like a reduced form way to mitigate some of these unintended uh, exposures. So so, doing valuation particularly within a peer group uh, is important. Uh, It's not perfect because there'll still be cases when (laughs) something might be cheap for a reason that you're still uh, unaware of.
1: Excellent. So, well, I guess uh, with that, uh, Scott, on behalf of Sam and myself, really do appreciate the certainly the time and the insights. Uh, Systematic is a space that we've certainly been long interested in. So have, being able to get you sort of on Credit Crunch to, to talk about it, it's been awesome. Uh, to our listeners, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, be sure once again to follow, comment, and share. Uh, this has been Credit Crunch.